Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Today is Friday, February the 15th, 2014, and as always, I'm your host, John Hansen. Now, as many of you know, last year we launched a year in the life of an e-procurement startup program, and of course, centered around choosing the company that we would follow through that year, with selecting out of a group of applications or submissions, or what we would call new wave companies, companies that we wanted to watch throughout the year, and that started again in 2014, and of course, 2015 is no different, as we selected a new group of organizations to follow. Now, I have to tell you that one of the things that's most interesting about this program, and the response has been fantastic, is that the definition of a startup. Now, we we typically seem to look at that as being a company that's new, that is in the prototype development stage, that is gaining traction and finding its marketplace. But what we've also discovered before we launched the initial program last year is that there are many undiscovered jewels or gems, as you could call them, organizations who have persevered and been around for 10, 15, some 20 years who could qualify as a startup in so much as they are now at that that crossroads, if you will, of having the right solution at the right time with a market that is ready to understand it. And I think that's really a key part about this program is opening up the door to organizations who would not otherwise have necessarily gained the traction. Now, one of those companies that we're going to be talking with today and what we consider to be a company to watch, New Wave Company for 2015, is Deem. And joining me is going to be Deem's founder and CEO, Patrick Grady. As you as we get into the discussion with Patrick, you'll get a really good sense in terms of why we figured they are an organization to follow, why they are indeed a candidate for the year in the life uh, winner, and uh, certainly uh, give you an idea as to where they reflect in the context of the overall greater market. In other words, why did we choose them? Why should you know about this organization? Now, before I get to Patrick, I want to remind everybody that we're broadcasting live through our studios in New York City. Uh, but if you're not able to join us live, and of course, if you are, we're glad to have you. But if you're not, not to worry, because the entire segment is going to be recorded, which means, listeners, you can tune in on an on-demand basis at your convenience. And uh, this, of course, is just one of the many, many great features of Internet Radio and Blog Talk Radio in particular. Now, without further delay, let's welcome to the show Patrick Grady. Patrick, how are you? I'm well, John. How are you? I am fine, thank you. And again, you know, we we had a little bit of a chat in the virtual green room, and one of the things that that was most interesting, I guess, is the history of DEEM itself. But before we get into that, maybe if you could, just for a moment or two, share a little bit of your background. Sure, sure. Uh, So prior to founding what is is now DEEM in 1999, uh, by the way, we commenced operations in 2000. The company was 
incorporated in, in the fourth quarter of, of 1999. Uh, prior to that, I spent about six months writing the business plan uh, for the company. Prior to that, uh, I served as the interim uh, CEO of one of my portfolio companies, and prior uh, to that, for the better part of a decade, I spent time investing in uh, directly and on behalf of my my, uh, my limited partners and my clients, uh, investing in a broad range of technology companies, some software some hardware, some networking, high-performance computing, but by and large, early to mid-stage technology companies, primarily in Silicon Valley. Okay, now I have to tell you, when you mentioned that, and one of the first things that came to mind in doing the research is there, there's that old Victor Cam commercial, I like the company so much I bought it. Here's an investor, financial background, <laughs> comes across it. And I mean, I, I don't know if that's an appropriate analogy, but instantly that comes to mind is is that you're a finance guy. You you're, you're, you're certainly understand the business world as it works, but for whatever reason, this company that has evolved and become Deem caught your eye, or at least what it, it can potentially do i mean is that a fair comparison you know well i don't know i mean i think it i think based upon upon the research it may appear that way but actually i was an english major before i dropped out of college at 19 to go to wall street and and wall street what what drew me to wall street was less about finance to to be to be honest than than inefficiency so i had this big idea and this big vision in my my late teens and early 20s uh to democratize venture capital um, I want to apply much of the same marketplace efficiencies to venture capital that Michael Milken had to the fallen angel bond, uh, now known as the junk bond market. So to be honest, I'm not, I don't view myself as a finance guy per se. I never really, really have. I go with that, you know, at a cocktail party, people say, oh, you grew up on Wall Street, you must be a finance guy. It's easy to say yes, but uh, but I, I was drawn to to tech very early on, um, I've, I view myself far more as a software product leader than I do a finance leader. Uh, and the products and the, the network and the platform that we have today are really uh, a manifestation of my vision for B2B commerce. And, and while I love working with my CFO, she's wonderful, uh, I try to leave the finance uh, part of the house to, uh, to Carol. See, now, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, and, and again, a thought that comes to mind on that basis is I wrote an article a, a couple months ago saying, you know, is Wall Street bad for, for the high-tech business? But with you, what you're talking about is it's not that you're an opportunistic individual like a lot of investors on Wall Street working on the periphery of understanding. It seems that you have actually approached Wall Street from the standpoint of understanding the market first. And then using that understanding to best, uh, I guess, direct funds and opportunities. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I no, I do. I mean, I, look, I, I've got a, a very good sense of the capital markets. I I pride myself in understanding topics at a fairly deep level, whether whether it's the capital markets, whether it's software technology, whether it's my my uh, only hobby in life, which is wine. Uh, I, I I pride myself on becoming expert in anything I I do. Uh, and I've, I've tried to leverage that knowledge of the capital markets and understanding balance sheets and understanding how to properly capitalize uh, a company, uh, uh, you know, whenever I, I can. But really, at my core, I am, I am a software guy. And, and what really got me to start this company is, is I had a vision for what is now deemed for many, many years. And I had been investing sort of around this thesis for a while. And then when I finally was asked by one of my my portfolio companies and their and the board of directors to come in as the interim CEO, 
frankly, I got the operating bug. I mean, it's it's the you know sort of classic player coach dilemma. It's fun to coach, but boy, it's it's frankly for some of us, it's a lot more fun to be on the field. And so I I sat there with my uh, my then wife six days after our first daughter was born. I said, I have a fantastic idea. Let me go start a software company. And so I uh, started writing the business plan for what is now Deem uh, in mid 1999. So you're not you're not a spectator is it's safe to say you're not a spectator in terms of the evolution of the high tech industry in particular Dean you as you mentioned are on the field you're you're a player in that regard I mean that's really the key factor isn't it Yeah I mean I've been on the operating side for two thirds of my professional career so uh, I I uh, that's ancient history for me that I was on the capital market side I very much view myself as a a very active operational software oriented CEO. Okay, now again, let's I look at. Res- I have. I just want you to know, John. I, I have a lot of respect for the role the capital markets, uh, you know, play in 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 helping to shape these companies. But I and I and I know you've covered this before. I look forward on this podcast to having a, a discussion and debate around the the you know whether that's a positive influence or a negative influence on some of these these tech companies. Well, we'll get to that, and yeah, I, I would be I will be very interested to find out your take on that, uh, given your, your your background. Looking at Deem itself, now you know we're talking about a little bit of yourself, and let's use this as a segue into Deem. What exactly is the Deem vision? Because you know we're going to talk about the fact that uh, that in, a, in an article by Wainwright, he he said that you know there was reference to the fact that you know not new and rebranded, and there's been suggested that you you you've really sort of like uh, remade the original vision. And I looked at it as being is that it's not a reworking of an old idea as much as a realization of a long-held vision uh, of yep. what might be possible becoming possible. It, when we talk like that, there's broad strokes, but what is DEEM? If somebody were to say to you, you know, and, and you can appreciate this from a finance and, and, and an executive standpoint and a visionary standpoint, in 20 seconds, if somebody were to ask you, what is DEEM? What does DEEM yeah, do? What solution does it provide? What would you say? Sure, I'll, I'll give you the the elevator pitch, John, and then I, I want to. I, I do think it's important to tie it back to the original vision and, and explain to your your audience how how we arrived here, because really it it, it is the realization of the original vision. Um, so so it's very straightforward. Deem is a leading commerce as a service company, and and we connect. And I'll explain our view of commerce as, as a service in in a, in a moment, uh, as opposed to say just software as a service, but. We're a leading commerce as a service company that connects a really large and and very diverse uh, and frankly quite quite unique ecosystem of businesses. We have today a little over 25,000 companies of all sizes, multinationals down to the very smallest of small business, even sole props, connected to the network, connecting them with their suppliers in the procurement vernacular. They're called suppliers. We here at Dean call them merchants, and I'll, I can explain why in, in just a moment. So, so we have this commerce network that connects buyers and sellers, and then we also have this sort of third leg to the stool, John, where we've created the network and our cloud-based applications in such a way that other third parties, market leaders in business services or travel services or consumer services or mobile services, can connect up to the network and take advantage of the applications or even all of the merchant content and offers that we have available across the network to deliver those capabilities to their clients. So a simple way to to think about Deem is you can come to the Deem network today and through a suite of cloud-based applications, you can buy virtually any product or service to run your business. 
you can connect to the Deem Network to sell virtually any product or, or service to drive revenue for your business. And through these third-party applica uh, applications or white-label applications we have and APIs, you can connect up and you can upsell and cross-sell virtually any product or service from our network into your existing customer base, which is a, a, a pretty novel thing here relative to traditional uh, B2B marketplaces or, or networks. We can get into a, a lot more detail. So we have cloud-based apps where companies can save money. We have cloud-based applications where companies can sell their products and services. And we have cloud-based applications and APIs to, to resell these services and applications. Okay, two interesting things comes to mind there. There's a technological element there, and I want to, want to investigate that with you in a moment, simply because they're talking about the emergence of mobile uh, capabilities, wearable technology, the influence that has in terms of, of, of uh, bringing buyers and sellers together. On the other side, the, the, the intelligence or the big data aspect of it, and, and, and things such as differential pricing and greater intelligence for, for the seller side uh, of the equation to be able to better understand the markets to, to whom they're selling to. I want to focus on this latter point first in terms of the intelligence and, and differential pricing and, and profiling of the marketplace. I mean, first and foremost, is this one of the strengths of, 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 of Deem in relation to the e-commerce uh, evolution? That, that you, you provide the intelligence that enables sellers to position themselves uh, to, uh, to better meet their client demands, to also be able to take advantage of potential price differential uh, opportunities uh, that, that can lead to greater profitability. I mean, what, what side of the equation does that deem, deem provide in terms of that? Yeah, so we have a full suite of applications. So let, let's let's go to them again. In the in the procurement vernacular, I should probably just touch on this for a moment. In, in the procurement world, as you know, it's customary to call these sellers suppliers, uh, I, and I understand that, and I don't necessarily want to fight that fight, John, with with CPOs and VPs of indirect procurement. If they want to call them suppliers, I'm I, you know far be it for me to, to to tell them how to run their business. But we call them merchants, um, and the reason we call them merchants is. is you know, first of all, I wouldn't like to be called a supplier or, or a vendor. I mean, it sort of screams commodity, undifferentiated product or service. But, but more than that, we explicitly call them out as as merchants because we know that they want to be able to merchandise their products and services. That they fundamentally believe, and, and quite likely it is the case, that their product or their services is unique in some way, maybe in many ways. And we want to help exploit those unique attributes in as many ways as we can to help them acquire new customers or in more deeply engage existing customers. And so you're bringing up pricing, and, and pricing is part of it. But, but there's a set of capabilities, whether it's you know helping them acquire the right demographic customer based upon identity information we may have in the network or geolocation information we have in the network, context information we may have on the net, in the network about the buy side. We want to help them, again, acquire the right new customer at the right new time, frankly, cost-effectively, and we want to help them re-engage existing customers. And so we have a set of capabilities where a merchant, whether it's a national merchant or a local merchant, by the way, that's another uh, fairly unique thing about our network. I mean, I think only Amazon or maybe Alibaba has the breadth and diversity of the, the merchant network that, that we do. So we have obvious you know, B2B national sellers and merchants in there. We have hyper-local uh, merchants like restaurants uh, connected to our network, and, and we allow them to market and sell to enterprise customers, to mid-market customers, to small business customers, even to consumers, although there's an asterisk there that I should probably underscore. We don't market directly to consumers, John. 
but but we do have major partners in our network, like AAA, the the major uh, association here in in the U.S. about 54 million users. AAA connects to our network, and they upsell and cross-sell offers and deals from local and national merchants into their base, into their customer base. So. So we, we can allow a merchant to target any market segment with a variety of promotions. Uh, those promotions could be standing corporate negotiated deals between a, you know, an airline like United and a big customer like Siemens, a fairly standard B2B. Um, they can run uh, opportunistic or evergreen discount offers for, to acquire new small businesses because SMBs are prohibitively expensive, as we all know, to, how to, acqu- uh, to acquire them. We can help them run card-linked offers. We can help them even do something as simple and as primitive as a prepaid voucher, like a Groupon. Uh, they can be time-based exclusives. They could, in fact, be price-based. Uh, but, but going back to the real value, it's really relevance, right? It's, a, it's applying our algorithms to drive relevance so that you're perfectly matching or as close to perfectly matching as possible buyers and sellers across the network. So that is very much core to our value proposition. Now, see, this sort of makes a little bit of sense in terms of your reference to, and again, you don't want to fight the battle of, of, of terminology such as supplier, uh, but put in merchant. But let's face it, everyone's saying that it, research articles, all these things are saying is that the lines between the traditional B2B world and the B2C world are becoming more blurred and, and in, in essence, merging one into the other. That corporate buyers, for example, want the same buying experience at the office that they have at home. I mean, realistically speaking, is that at the heart of what's redefining the definition of, of, of buyers and suppliers or buyers and merchants? I mean, are no, we yeah. dealing with, I mean, we're dealing with, for lack of a better word, an agnostic platform that doesn't, doesn't, isn't confined to the traditional definitions of, of the transactional partners. It's looking at the, the, the being, being the, 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 the control point for all these various relationships that in and of themselves can involve the same players but take on different roles. I mean, that's really what I'm picking up. Uh, is, that a, is that a fair assessment? Now, John, it's, a, it's extremely well said. And, and, and Deem, and this is well documented, Deem was not only a pioneer in what is now called cloud, which back then was called on-demand, and then it was renamed SaaS, and now it's cloud. Um, here in Silicon Valley, we manufacture buzzwords and, and acronyms like, like uh, we used to manufacture microprocessors. It's pr- pretty remarkable to me. But, but in any event, we helped to pioneer that. But part and parcel of that shift from client-server to web and, and, and then to this more you know, truly SaaS multi-tenant model, you know, we believe that you had to deliver a consumer experience and that each day employees were recognizing that on the consumer web, for example, in commerce, they could go to Amazon and in three mouse clicks, they could search for a product, review a product, and purchase a product, but they would go into their Ariba application and frankly, it was tantamount to a heart transplant. It would take 45 minutes to get a paperclip ordered. Uh, and, and that's just an untenable dynamic. There is no possibility that an employee is going to be that patient for that long when they have to get their jobs done. And, and so we've, we've always known that the first-generation commerce applications like Ariba and Commerce One and others would give way to more consumer-oriented applications. And, I, and I'll sort of bring it home with this comment. There is a legendary computer scientist here in Silicon Valley that your whole audience, I'm sure, either knows directly or has certainly read about. His name is John Seeley Brown also goes by JSB, and, and JSB used to run Xerox Park here, um, you know, sort of the fountainhead of, of much of the, the, the innovation we know of today. 
And JSB has been on the Amazon Board of Directors for, I think, 12, maybe 13 years now. And JSB has been the chair of our technical advisory board for a little longer than that. And he's spoken on the record about this. You know, his view is that the two most robust commerce platforms in the world are Amazon and Deem. And the fundamental distinction between the two is that Deem has this policy layer for B2B, sort of it's, it's a requirement for us that mediates between the user, whether they're you know, acting as an employee or as a consumer, but the user and the company's policies and the negotiated deals that company may have with their preferred merchants or suppliers to bring together the appropriate transaction at the appropriate time for all constituents. Again, the company, the merchant, and the user, right? So it combines identity information, location information, context data, the company policy, the employee role, the merchant's negotiated deal, the inventory that merchant may have, et cetera. And so, so I think that's a very fair uh, and very accurate assessment uh, of Deem. And we have tried in virtually every regard to emulate the approach that Amazon has taken to everything. Build a platform. Don't build a series of applications hollow out the application tier, push as much functionality into the platform as possible to be able to normalize the user experience across the applications. And, and continuing that sort of analog here, the way you can think about Deem vis-a-vis -vis its first application is, is thinking Amazon to books. And again, this is, you know, John has pointed this out on many, many occasions publicly. Amazon never believed they were going to build an enormous business on book buying but they, they, they did have a vision for all commerce. And what Jeff and the team understood is they had to build an actual application to ground that platform in reality, otherwise it's gonna be a science project. You gotta solve for something to start fleshing out the platform shopping components. And they did that, and you know they knew they wouldn't build a big business. It was not a high average sales price kind of product, pretty low margin, fairly high volume, but, but it wasn't gonna change the world. But, but it, People became addicted to it, people used it, and then they started adding other categories, which led to further discovery. But today, all these years later, about 20 years later for, for Amazon and Jeff and the team, who, who I admire greatly and, and basically unconditionally, the way you search for a product, review a product, buy a product, and experience a product, even on the return side of the experience, is virtually identical, independent of category or SKU, or even now services. They're now in things like local services. And so the way to think about Deem is exactly that. We built a very robust, very demanding platform. I think it's one of the things that, frankly, Phil, Phil Wainwright and, and folks like that have been attracted to over over the years is really the, the, the technology approach we have taken in, in building this. The first application for Deem, our book, if you will, our book application was Business Travel. It was a very demanding application uh, helping companies, you know, apply policy at the point of purchase on their on their travel-related uh, uh, spend, and that grounded the platform in reality. We're never going to build an enormous business. <clears throat> We're not going to build an Amazon off of travel. It's a pretty low ASP uh, application within B2B, but again, it's grounded the platform. And since then, we've been adding, in particular over the last few years, which we can get into more in the podcast adding more and more applications and categories. And today, when, you sh when you're booking a trip, it, believe it or not, it's virtually the same experience of, as buying paper clips or a ladder for your office. You see, and, you know, Patrick, pa sorry to happening. interrupt. Pa sorry to interrupt, Patrick, but one of the things that came in with what you're saying, and I'll go back to your talking about democratizing venture capitalists, 
uh, or venture capital, it's almost like you're democratizing commerce to a certain degree. I mean, if you if you if you think about this, and, and I want to get into this 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 realm because what you've done is you've made it acceptable, and this is where you see the B two C and the B two B world sort of blending in together. Is what you've done is you focused upon the experience of the transaction. And regardless of where that originates, regardless of, of what role each stakeholder plays in it, you create a level playing field of accessibility that is easy and streamlined. I've got to ask this, and, and if you agree with that, if you don't agree with that, let me know. But if you do agree with that, then I have to ask this. You know, we've heard about the uh, Gartner's post-modern ERP era coming into being, and I talked about and alluded to the emergence of wearable technology, of mobile technology, and all these other factors. With what you're talking about, if indeed we could use that catch line, democratizing commerce, is the, is, is the fact that in the past, the, the failures in, in terms of e-procurement initiatives around the old traditional ERP technology and the emergence of new technology that makes it more readily accessible, quicker and easier, again, looking at the, the, the wearable technology that's come about, the, the cell phones, I mean, are those the things that came together that opened up this, 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 this door for Deem's democratization of commerce? Do, do you know what I'm saying? I, I do know what you're saying. I do. And, and, I, and I think you're on to something. So, so I was there when, when all this started. I was here. I moved to Silicon Valley um, actually, 21 years ago last week, I was here, you know, for the birth of Mosaic. I was I was here for the birth of the B2B revolution. I was here when the you know the the founders uh, incubated what is now Ariba in Benchmark Capital's uh, office. I, I knew the partner uh, at at Benchmark who who funded it. Very smart guy, Bob Cagle. Uh, so I was there, and I had for first-hand knowledge. And furthermore, by the way, um, far from being a spectator, the something you may not be aware of, John, but the the chief architect of Commerce One and the senior VP of Engineering and Technology at Reba, so two existential enemies, you know, at the time, um, were both on my technology advisory board. Um, so I had a really a front row seat, if not a, a you know a seat for being able to walk around on the B2B field when this was all starting. And, and so here, here are my observations, and I think they're consistent with your thesis. So, first of all, um, the DNA. Uh, that has historically existed within, and I'm talking about the product management, engineering management, DNA, that has historically existed within ERP, is inconsistent in every regard, or almost every regard, to delivering a consumer experience to employees. Okay, They have been trained from the beginning of time to check as many feature functionality boxes as possible. Okay? so that they can go off and compete in RFIs and RFPs and win over the hearts and minds of Gartner and Forrester analysts. Okay, it's a, it's and I'm not picking on Gartner and Forrester, but it, it is a perverse set of incentives, if you will, that exist out there. Okay, to get in the magic quadrant, you got to check a thousand bo boxes, whether those boxes are features that, frankly, John, are ever used by the company, okay? And I would submit that in almost any application area, and maybe there's an exception I, I, I'm not aware of, but you know, by sort of year four or five of a new application, you've reached diminishing returns in terms of features that actually deliver value, and then you're just checking again boxes to keep up with RFIs and, and RFPs. So, so let's go back to ERPs, okay? Uh, implementing an ERP used to be a heart transplant. You know, you, you'd spend a buck on software, you'd spend $10, 15 $20 on the implementation. It was all essentially customized 
software. It was designed to automate very complex business processes for really a handful of people in an organization. I mean, if you take, I'm a big fan of NetSuite, a more modern cloud-based uh, ERP company. I'm a huge fan. In fact, I'm such a fan that I'm a customer here, right? So Deem, Deem employs, you know, roughly 400 employees, uh, and we're a very happy, satisfied uh, uh, customer. But we, we have two or three people during any given week that use an ERP product, use the NetSuite product. But we have 400 people that, that are buying products and services to get their job done, okay? They might be setting up a WebEx, they're shipping a package, they're taking a client to dinner, they're booking a trip, they're getting, you know, paper clips, they've ordered a new Lenovo laptop, et cetera. And, and so the, the, these guys in the ERP world never had to deal with this, Joan. They just didn't have to deal with human beings, okay? They were, they were automating business processes sort of either for the glass house in IT or for a handful of people in, in financial planning, right? So I would submit they just never had... They never had to sort of create those muscles and get those habits in, in, in place. Now, let's go to Ariba and Commerce One. Many, not all, many of the people that were there at the very beginning of the Aribas and the Commerce Ones and the Vertical Nets, and there were hundreds, as you know, came from those companies. And what made matters, this is one man's opinion, what made matters particularly acute vis-a-vis -vis usability of these applications is the land grab that existed. Okay, so so I, I am both going to condemn and defend the Arebas and Commerce once. Okay, so I'm going to take both sides because I was there. So uh, the products were horrible. They were largely vaporware. They were largely architecture. And again, I was right there when this was created. Okay, um, again, I had the tech guys on my advisory board. Uh, not built for human consumption. Uh, rolled out uh, uh, quickly. Um, not not really tested from a quality uh, perspective. Lots of uh, customer satisfaction issues, um, and and so I could go on. But but now, how can I possibly defend that? So I'll, here's uh, here's my best attempt at defending defending those poor products. Back in the late 1990s, when these companies were created and gaining scale, it was a bubble, John. Okay, you were there. I was there. You remember the bubble. Okay, it was a land grab. There was a sense of euphoria. Chuck Phillips, when he was the analyst at Morgan Stanley, and Mary Meeker, when she was at Morgan Stanley, wrote these unbelievable reports, you know, 50, 100-page opus-like reports on trillions of dollars of B2B commerce, frictionless across global marketplaces, private marketplaces, private networks, all, you know, direct supply chain, indirect procurement. And it, it was, a, again, a sense of euphoria. So, so I'm, again, I'm going to defend the Arivas and Commerce ones. You had all of this euphoria. With euphoria comes a lot of venture capital. So you had this massive overfunding of B2B with hundreds and hundreds of marketplaces and vendors competing for the same budget, basically. There was a clear sense within the Arivas and Commerce ones that if they didn't go sell that vaporware and architecture to, to whoever, GE or British Telecom, then their competitor would. If you look back, these companies were signing deals, and I'm not sure they were even sales processes. They are more like order-taking order processes. They were, they were going from initial contact to closing a contract within 30 or 60 days and trying to deploy initial deployments within 90 days. You can't do that, John. You can't possibly build world-class, scalable, platform-like software in weeks and months. It's just not a possibility. Okay, there's no short-circuiting great software. 
but but I think it was a it was the land grab and the bubble that drove a lot of the bad behaviors. And by the way, they were rewarded for that, right? The capital markets were there, the companies went public, again fueled by these research reports saying that this was just sort of the top of the first inning. Ariba and Commerce One, I I believe, and you can fact check this, but I believe at the very top were worth probably sixty to seventy billion dollars uh, combined. Combined. Okay, now you know what? So there's a couple started, of points. It, it rewarded bad but, but, behavior. There's a couple of points you raise here, which I think is important, because that segues into, you know, is Wall Street bad for business? Uh, back in November 29th, I wrote an article of that title, and I cited two things that I thought were, were extremely interesting. When you refer to Ariba, and one of their senior executives in, in, in commenting on the myth of Ariba said, Ariba was basically a fraud, creating the impression that they were constructing a global, global marketplace, even though this was seen as being a rather impossible task. He then goes on to say they went through the motions because, as you were talking about, uh, the stock was the only thing that mattered. And as long as Wall Street was rewarding them with increased stock values, uh, it actually uh, very much gave them the ability to buy other companies and to sort of support this false bubble, if you will. Yeah. But the, yeah. the, the, the executive laments, he said, uh, you know, it started very much as a real company, was actually blindsided by the Internet boom. On the other side of the parallel, and let's look at Larry Ellison, uh, someone who I've never been a big fan of, and Oracle's early troubles when they had to lay off a significant portion of their staff because of their, their propensity. I think you may have touched on this a little bit about booking sales and future sales in the present quarter to buoy their stock. But those sales or products were never developed or never realized, and they had to go through a restatement of financials. So here's a question that runs parallel and ties to Dean, because you were back there. You've maintained this uh, integrity of vision, which which is interesting. These other organizations, of course, Oracle is still a powerhouse. Ariba is, of course, now part of SAP. But but like if you look at these 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 kinds of scenarios here, how can we trust uh, the Wall Street marketplace? to reward people for the wrong outcomes if, if, if they have the history of doing that. Yet, do we need Wall Street to drive the innovation that is necessary to bring about the realization of a bona fide player such as a deem? I mean, what are your thoughts? Because that, that goes back to our earlier discussion. Yeah, these are, these are incredibly important questions and very, very complex uh, questions and answers. So, so let, me, let me sort of... Uh, let me try to get precise here for you. So, first of all, I would not characterize Ariba or Commerce One as, you know, frauds. What, what I, because I, I know some of the people. What I would say is that there were people there, John, at the beginning that really believed. They were missionaries. They deeply believed in the vision of those companies. They believed in the mission of those companies. They, they believed they were changing the world. They believed they were transforming commerce, that which would make mankind better. I mean, they really believed this. I mean, I know some of these people. You look them in the eye, and they, they and you could argue that they were drinking Kool Aid. That's that's fine, but but they really were devout believers. Now there were also people who arrived on the scene around that time, uh, and you can't blame the bankers, right? So bank investment bankers are are there to sort of just broker the supply and demand. They don't create the supply, nor do they create the demand. I mean, uh, you know, either mutual funds want want access to these privately held companies or, or they don't. No banker on no roadshow is capable of convincing a smart portfolio manager at at T row price to do something they they don't want to do. I pr I promise you, we're giving bank we're giving investment bankers too much credit for for their role in the in the capital markets. We'll get to that in a minute. But but you know clearly the promise of an IPO 
and we'll talk about what, what's happened here to even our own culture over the years, the evolution of the Dean culture, which I think is an important thing to talk about for your audience. But when there's a, an opportunity for large-scale liquidity, you will invariably attract mercenaries who are joining not because they believe in the vision, not because they believe in the mission, not because they want to change the world, not because they want to connect somehow to something that is greater than, than themselves and their own contribution, but because they want to make a, a fast buck. And I'm not sure that that there's much we all can do about that as CEOs. I mean, we, um, you know, I think you'd appreciate this since it's a timely topic. In, a, in sometime over the next couple of weeks, we're having a young art student come into our office here in San Francisco, and we're putting uh, uh, up on the wall in the lobby the, the following saying. It says, all missionaries are welcome here. Mercenaries need not apply. And uh, so we're pretty passionate here about making sure that we – we only have missionaries in the building, but the bigger the company gets and the closer you get to an IPO, it becomes more and more difficult to screen out those that 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 may be coming for the for the wrong reason. So, so it was a very unique time, um, and we've seen we've seen these types of, of you know environments over the last you know hundred plus years uh, where where there's a disruptive innovation, it unleashes an, a, a lot of capital, the market gets overfunded. You know the capital markets want access to it. People want to participate on on what they believe is uncommon upside, and then and then supply and demand. You know, and efficient markets finally you know play a role, and then there's this massive shakeout, rationalization, and then you know some of these companies get on the other side and and, and build sustainable businesses. So what I would say is Ariba and Commerce One weren't filled with either good people or bad people. I think there was a, a pretty good mix of, of both. I think the technology was immature. I don't think the companies were ready to go public from a, an operational perspective. Their numbers were off the charts, the finance, the revenues. Um, but again, I would say, just defending these guys, and, and I, 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 don't have an, I don't have a dog in this fight, John. I'm not, I'm, you know, I have no, no equity stakes in any of these companies. I never did. I you know, I just feel like the Ariba guys probably sat there and said, well, if we wait a year or two to bake our software probably, uh, properly, Commerce One's going to take all our business and vice, uh, vice versa. And with respect to the, the role of the, the, the capital markets, um, look, what, what makes the United States still, the, the, still the, the place to be for entrepreneurs is that we have a tolerance for risk and failure uh, like none other. And, and and when I say you know a tolerance, it's it's a sustainable tolerance. We, you know, we at an individual of you know a venture capitalist understands that for every ten investments they make, two will be ten baggers, two will go to zero, six will sort of be the the living dead and and never really generate a, a big return. Implicit in their their portfolio, they know that's what that's what's going to to happen. Um, at a venture fund level, they know that's going to happen. At, at, at a limited partner level, whether you're CalPERS or Stanford, you know that's the case. So you have sort of built into your models this idea that some companies will succeed, some companies will fail. Uh, and the capital markets, the public markets here in, in the U.S. understand, the institutional side of the house understand that some of these are going to work out. Some of these uh, aren't going to work out. Now, we're all, unfortunately, human beings. Fidelity, to me, you know, they're an investor here, full disclosure, and they're some of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life. And, and uh, I view them as some of the most discerning buyers of, of technology I've ever seen. And 
but they're also human beings. And so uh, I'm sure that people, very, very smart portfolio managers at, at Fidelity have bought IPO, you know, stock in IPOs that have performed well and, 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 and ones that haven't performed well. So I'm not sure you can take the human being out of all of this. There's always going to be fear and greed. Uh, but I think what makes us special here still in the U.S., hopefully it doesn't end, uh, is a tolerance for, for failure. Now, the thing about the free enterprise system, as you know, is it leads to significant dislocation. The highs are higher when you have a capital market system like this, and the lows are lower. You have these incredible peaks and troughs and the supply and demand of risk capital, and there are violent shakeouts. You get, you know, you go back to the era of the railroad, there were hundreds, and then there were a few. You go back to B2B, there were hundreds, and then there were a few. You look at B2C, it's wonderful that we all have, you know, sort of coalesced around Amazon, but there were a lot of these vertical shopping sites at the same time. And so, really, if you look at the trend line, if you step back and look at the violent, you know, step aside, uh, if you would, from the violent shakeout and attrition in the 2001 through 2004 time period, the trend line is up and to the right. Even if you look at mobile, you know, you're old enough, John. I don't, I'm not going to pick on your age, but I saw a picture of you online. You, you, it looks like you were there for the bubble like me. Uh, Palm and Trio, right? And now look what's happened to, you know, your favorite Canadian company, uh, BlackBerry. Violent shakeouts, Nokia, violent sh- If you look at the market capitalization of all those other companies, it's basically moved from those companies to the Apple market capitalization. But the trend line is okay. up and to the right. So. Okay, well, what's interesting about this now, and, and, and again, in a piece I wrote about the Indian e-commerce marketplace and why this is, is not a repeat of another bubble, is that would we not say that the technology – the implementation timeline of the technology, the the accessibility of all stakeholders or parties to a transaction being as more plentiful and abundant as it is. I mean, does this not lessen the influence or the amount of capitalization that's required to get a solution to market? Do, do you know what I'm saying, Patrick? I mean, it, 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 it's almost as if, and I'll go back to this democratizing commerce type of thing, where uh, smaller organizations can do with a couple million dollars what the bigger companies in the ERP companies back uh, during the original boom uh, had to do with hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. Yeah. I mean, is that uh, is that the element of democratizing commerce that, so that makes so it accessible? I mean, is that is that a fair yeah. perspective yeah, John, as to why? John, honest, honestly, that you just you know the proverbial nail on the proverbial head. So that it all starts with this. Okay, there are three immutable laws that shape everything we have just discussed for for the better part of a half hour or so. And that is you have Moore's Law, right, that tells us what's going to happen with with price performance of of microprocessors. You have Gilder's Law, which which governs that same price performance curve for for, uh, communications, and and you have what's called the Disk Law by by most of us that governs price performance of, of storage. And if you look at those curves that, that vary between 12 and 18 months on the doubling of, of the price performance, and you plot that out, the reality is everybody knew that what is an, what, what's now an iPhone, we sort of knew that was coming forever ago. And we got caught up in Palm and, and Handspring and, 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 and the like, or BlackBerry. But at the end of the day, you knew you would ultimately have an iPhone. You knew, by the way, 15 years ago, if you just plotted those curves, that we'd have the Dick Tracy iWatch. And what's amazing, I mean, I have two daughters, one's 15, one's 10, and I, I just, you know, I sit there in wonderment 
thinking about what my 10-year-old is going to be using from a technology perspective in the next 10 or 20 years because, again, there is no end in sight across any of those immutable laws. And so to your very point, if I started the equivalent of DEEM today, okay, I would be able to do it on somewhere between 2 and maybe 4% of what it took me to build back in 2000 from an infrastructure perspective. And so, yes, I mean, look, I mean, you can go out now, two guys and a dog in a garage, raise a couple of million bucks in a Series A round, and, and tap into Amazon Web Services, right? You can basically rent infrastructure. You, you can leverage, and there are two other, there's, there's the other side of this coin, by the way. So we're to, we're, what we're covering right now is the, the sort of computer science side, the infrastructure side, right, the CapEx side. But on the other side, John, going back in the Wayback Time Machine, you know, when, when these B2B companies were built, or even when Amazon was starting, there were 50 million people online, 50-ish, okay? You're now at three of seven billion human beings having some form of Internet connectivity. So not only can you build something for, for 2 to 4% of what it would have cost just 15 years ago, but your customer app acquisition costs are de minimis. And this isn't just for consumer applications. This isn't simply building a cool app, putting it in the app store, and having you know, word of mouth and reviews spread like wildfire. There are now B2B companies that aren't hiring salespeople. They are building applications like Slack. Right? Slack's the fastest growing company in history of, by some measures. This is a company that's one year old, now worth a billion dollars with a half a million users with virtually no customer acquisition costs. So everything, what's changed? Everything has changed, and yet really nothing's changed, right? So it's just it's just these three laws that are going to continue to make it cheaper and easier, and then the democratization comes from access. I mean, I, I gave a I gave a keynote tech talk about ten years ago in in London, and and I led with the Andy Grove quote, you know, which is in technology what can be done will be done, and you just got to start your day every day knowing that that technology will find a way. It's like water; it will find a way. And, and you plot these, these curves and you go, okay, yeah, it's just going to get faster, it's going to get cheaper, and it's going to get more ubiquitous. And you sort of have to skate to where the puck is going to be. You should not be building a business on what the world looks like today. Look out a few years, and that's how you start, you start planning your, your financial model. So okay, let me ask you this question because we're, we're running out of time, and, and I, I, I could talk to you for hours. Two questions. Me too. Let's the, keep this going. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing is, is I, I, I'll ask you this. The deem advantage is your dual era perspective. I mean, because you have an understanding of what was before, you persevered and brought this company to being in the position of, 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 of being, I don't know if, if it would be fair to call it nimble, uh, adaptive. You, you don't have the baggage let's say, of an Ariba or an ERP model or a traditional application and their business model, you don't have that same baggage that can be very difficult to, 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 to bring about in terms of an adjustment. And, and I remember talking with the, the, the former CFO of, of Ariba when they said they made the move to the on-demand business, and he said, we're now in demand a few years ago, but the hardest part, he said, was a changeover in the company's DNA which had a lot of implications, your DNA has been this all along. So, I mean, you're sort of an, an evolutionary a, a, a anomaly, I guess, would be the best way to do yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that's well said, yeah. Uh, so, so let me, yeah, that, I should probably, 
Yeah. What, what 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 does 2015 bring for you? Like with Deem, we're going to have many conversations. But at the end of 2015, what should we look for? We're sitting back in the future. What 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 will De- have Deem accomplished? Yeah, let me yeah. So let me let me start by saying yeah, 2015 is really the beginning of the third chapter uh, of, of this company's history. So I'll be very brief here because I know we're coming coming to the end of the the podcast. But but it, I think it's important. You can't talk about 2015 for Dean without touching on chapter one and two. So briefly, chapter one, we lived a, candidly a bit of a charmed life. Um, we we found you know I started the company in November of '99. I commenced operations in in Q1 of of 2000. And and you know it, I, some of your audience may be scratching their head saying how can it be how can it be a charmed existence when when you had to survive the bursting of the bubble and thousands of companies uh, died. I, I would say it's actually it helped to instill in the company a, a sense of of. Um, tenacity and and you know we we can do this if you could survive the bubble bursting when everything else died there was a sense of destiny that no matter what comes our way we are going to get on the other other side of this but but we were char- we lived a charmed existence we we were sort of the the quintessential John Silicon Valley company we had very well known angel investors i mean Vinod Kosla, the legendary uh you know venture capitalist out of Kleiner and now he's got Kosla Ventures and you know, he was one of the founders of Sun. He's an angel investor. Burt McMurtry, the legendary venture capitalist who backed Microsoft and Sun and Intuit and many, many others and gave birth to numerous <coughs> venture funds. You know, Burt is an icon, and Burt was my first investor here in, in the company as an example. So we had those angels. We had, we had you know, uh, tier one VCs, Foundation Capital, Oak Investment Partners. And you talk about technology. We had not only John Seeley Brown, we had the former CTOs and heads of engineering of companies like Microsoft, eBay, PayPal, again, Ariba, Commerce One. We, we, we sort of had this Hall of Fame group of technologists shaping the original vision with me on the platform and, and, and network side. And and we had an incredible culture. It was your you know sort of classic meritocracy. It was a work hard, play hard culture. Everyone knew the vision and mission, uh, vision and mission. Everyone was a missionary. Everyone was having fun. Again, didn't matter what came our way. We knew we'd get on the other side. So life was pretty good, right? Stock price was going up. So people would say, hey, wow, the company's performing, right? If that was their measure. More importantly, customer growth was going up. So more importantly, that was our internal measure. So just by any, any measure of the business, all was good and we were having fun. And then I made a horrible mistake. I made a fateful decision that nearly killed the company. And I own it. Nobody else owns this decision except except for me as the, the chief executive officer and founder. And that is I had this working hypothesis that from the very beginning it was part and parcel of the original business plan that that if I could build this network of, of buyers and, and sellers and if I architected it the right way, then then lots again, lots of market leaders in a variety of verticals could connect to it and bring their customers and bring their merchants and, and, and their assets. And so so I signed an agreement in 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 the end of two thousand and seven and then I allowed them to invest in the company in two thousand and eight. JP Morgan Chase invested in the company. And you know, partnering with banks in the first half of 08, six months prior to Lehman Brothers going out of business and the financial sector under siege and the world nearly coming to an end and a multi-year credit crisis may have not been the best decision I ever made. 
And then, and then, you know, doubling down, uh, we ended up letting Citi invest in the company and partnering with the company. And, and by 2011, John, this company bore very, very little resemblance to the company we just described for the better part of the podcast. And we became essentially the custom development arm of two banks in New York. So uh, there was a fox hen house issue here. You had investors who were banks who were also commercial partners, who were also on the board of directors, exerting their influence to basically uh, control the factors of production, which, as you know, for a software company is our engineering talent. And so we went into a dark place, uh, you know, no marketing really, very little marketing, virtually no sales, and uh, we sort of disappeared off the, ra- off the radar. And in 2000, at the very end of 2013, Fidelity, the mutual fund, who makes very few private investments, I think they've done about 20, companies like Uber and others, um, they came in to invest in the company along with me personally and, and some of my friends. And we completely recapitalized the company and removed their influence from the business so that we could take it back. And in fact, if you walk around the halls of our offices and you you say uh, September 19th, 2013, people will laugh at you and they will call it Independence Day. That's what it's affectionately called here. It's when we got our company back from the banks. And we're back to sort of our regularly scheduled program. So it is, it is, you know, focused on the original vision, the, ori- the original mission of the business, the old cultural values uh, that we had for so many years, uh, 2000, 2007, and we have our company back. And what I find very strange, John, and, and your audience may as well, I mean, everybody I talk to in the procurement space uh, scratches their head. I, it's a re- You talk about anomalies. Deemed not just an anomaly, the procurement space is, because given the rate of, of of change in the technology world, um, particularly in, in software and cloud. One, and given all of the venture capital that exists in the world today, one would think that if Deem went into hibernation from sort of early 08 to late 13, 14, there would now be a couple of dozen direct competitors to Deem, cloud-based, mobile-based, and and really nothing's changed. So, so Ariba... Uh, got you know got acquired during that time uh, uh, by by SAP for 4.3 billion. Uh, Concur, which is a legacy software travel expense company that re reimagined themselves as a on-demand SaaS company, got bought uh, by SAP. So to you know, I know you've done a lot around the ERPs. I mean, the idea that innovation is going to come from SAP, I mean, it's just it's high comedy. I mean, there's nobody that believes that. There's nobody that believes that. And, and so they're gone, and, and the only company that's really emerged that I, I, I give, you know, some credit to, I think Coupa, you know, is doing a terrific job. I mean, you know, they don't have the network we do. They don't have, you know, the other applications we do. They don't have the platform we do, but they've, they've built a really nice consumer-look-and-feel application for, for procurement, and I, and I give them a lot of credit for that, by the way. Um, so it's good to see some innovation, but other than Coupa, uh, there's really nothing that, that's changed here. So... So we're very blessed uh, and, and very grateful that after going through this sort of six-year nightmare with, with two banks in New York, um, you know, we're able to actually go back to fulfill the, uh, the vision. It's, uh, we're actually having fun again, and again, we're very grateful. So really, the best way to sum it up, other than let's call it a detour, let's call it realization of the original vision delayed, not so much yeah. derailed because you're back on track, yeah. is at the end of the yeah. day, what, what 2015 represents is the realization and that for whatever reason, as you described, uh, the market sort of froze 
while you were on this yeah. this detour, which gave you the chance to come back on stream again and uh, come back uh, w- w- with a firm understanding in, in the direction you want to go. Well, you know what, Patrick? I, I've got to thank you for taking the time today uh, to talk uh, with us. Uh, I, again, this is one of the reasons why we looked at you as a new wave company, is that there is that unique blend of historic perspective, which gives a broader understanding of how the industry got to where it is today, yet you're able to still leave the door open to become a big part of the influence going forward. So, again, just thank you so much for joining us. John, it's my pleasure. I'd love to do it again. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll look forward to hopefully another invitation to, to spend some time together. Great. Thank you so much. And, of course, to you, listening audience, I just want to thank you for sharing what is your most important asset, which is your time. And uh, just to remind you again that this program has been recorded and you will be able to listen to it in its entirety on an on-demand basis. Uh, Until we come across over these same virtual airways again, as always, I remain your host, John Hanson. Have a great weekend. (laughs) 